0: We spent a couple of years out in San Diego uh, when I was like in first, second grade, and it was an amazing time. Uh, Still love it, have memories, and uh, my parents were going to grad school out there. And uh, we would go to the beach all the time, just fell in love with the beach. You know, when you're a kid, it doesn't matter how cold it is, right? You just go in. I would stay in for hours. I could be purple, you know, shivering. Didn't matter. I just loved being in the water so much. And I remember this one beach we went to north of San Diego. I can't remember exactly where, um, but north of San Diego, we'd go to this one beach. And there was always like a, a pretty good down coast current that was that was happening. And so I remember you'd go out and you'd be swimming and, you know, catching waves and hanging out and just playing. And before you know it, you look up and your parents are way up there, like waving their arms in motion and motioning, get back here, right? Anybody do that when you're a kid? Yeah. And just because of the current, there is a natural tendency to drift. There's just, I mean, it just pulls you, right? And you you don't real really realize it's happening. You're just playing. You're having fun, and you're not paying attention. And before you know it, you look up, and you're way down the coast, and you know you gotta actually get out and run back up, and get back in the water in front of your parents, and recenter yourself on where you're supposed to be, right? And see, I think actually life is a lot like that sometimes, isn't it? See, in life, so many of us, I mean. It's so frequent that you have a uh, a mission. I, I think we could probably, most of us could identify with, with starting the year, you know, with a resolution or some health goals, and then life just happens, right? And maybe months, a few months later, you look up, and the current of life has just like, you know, you got busy, you got focused on other stuff. You look up, and you're no longer centered on your goals, right? For some of you, are like, that takes like two, three weeks in January, Honestly, for most of us, right? But life has a way of doing that, of, of when you have an important mission, an important goal, something you're centered on, just to the current, you know, and it's not, it's, the, it's not that you were intentionally trying to, you know, move along or drift away from your mission or where you're supposed to be. At, just that's life. And if you're not paying attention, if you're not deciding where you're going to be, um, you tend to drift, Right. And I think this is very similar to our walk with God. And as a follower of Jesus, I think our mission in life, our primary mission in life, tends to drift from being centered on what is most important to all sorts of other things. I think it just happens naturally. It's the tendency. It's the natural current of life. Last week, we looked at uh, perhaps one of the most famous Verses in the Bible, John 3.16, which I think probably most people in the room, you, you likely would be able to recite it by heart. And uh, we actually looked at it in the context of a whole section, a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. And in context, actually, as we looked at this um, scripture in context, I think there's all sorts of things in there when it came from darkness and light and different things that we don't often think about. And before we move on too quickly in the narrative in the book of John, which we're going to do next week, get back to the narrative, move on and wrap up chapter three. But before we do that, I want to spend a little bit more time in three of these incredibly important verses for the purpose of reminding us of our primary mission. Of recentering us on our primary mission and on getting you to actually ask the question Have I drifted from that mission? Has my family drifted from the primary mission as a follower of Jesus? Now, before I read these verses to you, I just want to remind you of the context. Uh, of these verses. And, and, and in the verses right before this, um, in Jesus, in this conversation with Nicodemus, he, he makes this statement that's so profound because it's right at the core of our faith. And it's this, he said, the son of man, referring to himself, must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. In him. So the Son of Man, Jesus, must be lifted up. He's speaking of the cross that everyone who believes, who trusts in, believes in these two little Greek words that, that communicate the idea of fully placing your trust. I use the stool as an example, not just like acknowledging there's a stool there, but actually fully placing your trust in, in Jesus. And it's, this, it's an ongoing relationship, right? There's a moment where you enter in and where you acknowledge and where you trust in him for the first time, and then it's a life of trusting in him for your salvation, trusting in what he did at the cross as you walk with him. That's what walking with Jesus means. And he transforms your life through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And and here's the point, I think, in setting up these verses is that the cross is actually the cross and the resurrection is the center of our faith. It is the center place. That it's the center of the gospel, the cross, and the resurrection is the center of the gospel or the good news, and it's the, the center of our faith. And actually, it's really interesting, I think, that actually the symbol of the cross became the symbol of our faith. I remember going to uh, South Korea when I was traveling, uh, when I was uh, 18 or 19, over to Thailand, actually, on a, on a mission trip, and seeing just crosses lit up all over Seoul. And, and it's, have you ever thought about how, how strange it is? You probably haven't because you probably have jewelry, many of you, and it's just so, such a part of our culture, and it's such a thing that brings comfort. And yet how odd it is that the symbol of faith that brings us comfort that so many people wear as, as jewelry is actually a Roman execution stake. It would be like us wearing a little miniature electric chair I'm serious. Have you ever thought about how strange that is? And, and when, our, when the forefathers of our faith were, were you know, coming, were, we're talking about this, the cross was the only thing that made sense as, as time progressed to be the symbol of our faith because it was the cross and the resurrection that actually are at the center of the gospel. And they're at the center of our faith. And they're at the center of history, actually. And Now, you know, we count A.D., our current era of history, uh, the year of the Lord, A.D. We count it from the, the date of Jesus' birth, roughly. But actually, the truth is, had Jesus not died and risen from the dead, you would have never heard of the name of Jesus. There were plenty of other people in history that claimed, you know, Messiah status who died and stayed in the grave and you've never heard their name. Let me prove it to you. Um, how many of you have heard of Bar Cook Bar? Now, some of you, probably because I've mentioned him here, right? Or because you're nerdy like me. One of the two. Otherwise, it's like, oh, no, never heard of him. Well, he was a very famous. Actually, in the first century, he became much more powerful he led a, you know an army and uh, but he, guess what he died and he stayed in the grave and you've never heard his name most of you and see this is the truth is the gospel the heart is the cross and the resurrection and what the cross means that Jesus said the son of man that I'll be lifted up that whoever believes in trusts in me might have eternal life that is at the heart. Of the gospel. And that remains actually the heart, as we're going to see in a minute, of our mission and what we need to remain focused on. And so that's the context that sets up these, these three little verses, starting with, with one of the most famous verses ever written in history. And I just want to read them for you and, and just highlight a couple of things. And then I want to move on and talk about recentering our lives on the mission. John 3, 16, for God, So loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Now, I think in these three little verses, when we read these and when we read them in in the context, you know, together, these three little verses, which are at the heart of the gospel itself, the good news, it should both be some of the most comforting words we read and some of the words that actually make us the most uncomfortable. These words are so comforting, John 3:16. For God so loved the world. And the way that John uses this word cosmos or, or world throughout the gospel of John it is not sort of like the way we think of the word world sometimes. And um, it, everybody remember, like, we are the world. Remember that? We are the children. Every, all the guys singing. No, just me from my childhood. <laughs> it was famous back in the day. Michael Jackson, a whole bunch of others, Right. And so we have this kind of like cozy picture of the world. When we all come together, it's all happy and and, and cozy. But actually, the way John uses the word world is is a world that's at odds with God. A world that's actually stiff-arming God. A world that's actually actively in rebellion. Not a world that's welcoming God. In fact, we see in John chapter 1 that it says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And this is the idea, that the world was actually a world that's in rebellion to God. And the the amazing, comforting thing is that God so loved that world. He loved the people of this planet who were actually in rebellion to him, and this is the heart, this is the comforting part of, of John 3.16 and of the message of the gospel, is that instead of this idea of an angry, grumpy God who is just waiting to smack people upside the, the head with a, you know, a two-by-four or something like that, whatever that caricature of God is, the truth is he looked at a world that was in rebellion to, to him, and he first loved us. He loved us. He came after us. He loved and he gave first to a world that didn't want him. And some of you, that's your story. You were far away from God. You were not looking for God. And in his grace, he came after you and he found you. I've heard heard some of your testimonies. That God found you. God came after you. You weren't looking for him, but he loved you first. That's actually all of our testimonies. We just don't recognize it all the time. Some of you, it's because you were so actively that you you have no doubt because you were very actively in rebellion. And he loved you. He came after you first. And in his grace, he found you. A God who loves a world in rebellion, a God who gives and gives the most precious thing in the world, his only Son, who gives actually of himself as God comes in the flesh. The Trinity, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the three in one. God comes in the flesh and dies for us. And this was actually so counterintuitive in the first century. A revelation of a God like this. In fact, there's a quote by a guy, he's not a Christian, he's, he's a secularist, and he wrote a book called The Evolution of God. And he's writing about the historicity of the crucifixion, And actually why historians see this as as such a, uh, you know, uh, that the the crucifixion actually happened. It's called the criteria of credibility. Here's what he says. He says, we can be pretty sure the crucifixion happened, in part because it made so little theological sense. In other words, nobody at the time would have come up with this on their own. He goes on. John 3.16 puts it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And as powerfully as these words ring now imagine their impact in the ancient world throughout history gods had been beings to whom you made sacrifices now here was a god that not only demanded no ritual sacrifices from you but himself made sacrifices indeed the ultimate sacrifice for you not amazing it's actually quite a revelation, I think. So counterintuitive. Nobody was looking for it, right? And it's, these words are so comforting that there's a God that loves you enough that he would sacrifice for you. It's at the heart of the gospel. But as comforting as those words are, as you go on in the passage, it's actually very uncomfortable, too. And if it doesn't make you a little bit uncomfortable, I don't think you're paying attention. I don't think you're feeling the weight of it because it says God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. That's amazing, right? But the world was already condemned. And see, at the heart of the good news, the gospel is the bad news that a fallen planet and fallen humanity is already in rebellion against God. It's already. And see, this is this is the point. The wages of sin is death, that we are spiritually separated from God apart from relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. And that should actually make you very uncomfortable if there's people in your life that you love. Cuz this is the truth. This is the truth that scripture tells us and see the 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 kind of the ethos of our culture in the last 100, 125 years, through you know, after the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, is basically you know progress and and humanity is basically good. And if just through science and through technology and getting the right politicians in and through you know enough education, um, like if we can get all these things put into place, we can better ourselves and essentially save ourselves. And that's actually a myth. In fact, there's a scholar named Huston Smith, and he writes in his book called The Soul of Christianity. He says this, the 20th century is the most barbaric in history. It makes the myth of progress read like a cruel joke. 160 million human beings slaughtered by their own kind in the context of war. That happened. And it hasn't been that long ago in history. There's been more dying of starvation in a single decade than in all of history combined. The AIDS epidemic, the widening gap between the rich and poor, racism, environmental crisis, the threat of nuclear holocaust, the list goes on and on and on. And see, I'm, one, of, one of the easiest things um, when you just look at humanity, one of the easiest things to acknowledge and to prove is the fallenness of humanity. And it's not just a few bad apples every here and again. There's a brokenness within. Nobody had to teach you to be selfish. You don't have to give that class to your kids. Did anybody realize that? Mine. You didn't teach them that, did you? (laughs) You did not teach your child to bite his sister, you know. There's a fallenness. There's a brokenness. And that's where where John says, hey, the world was already condemned. In a state of sin. Broken. Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Not just like, yeah, I made a mistake or two. No, he says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You needed a rebirth, like earlier in this chapter, to be born again, to be made spiritually alive. And yeah, there's beauty in humanity because we're made in the image of God. But at the core, there's a brokenness. There's a fallenness. The world stands condemned. There's a reality of eternity, of heaven, of hell, of judgment. See, and that's a hard thing for our culture because in our culture, it is offensive to think of a God who would dare judge. Do you realize that's a very, like, first world problem kind of thing? Because in cultures all over the world, I mean, it's just, I know, you know, real atrocities happen and have happened and not in the, you know, too far history in our nation, right? But in, in places and in cultures that have struggled under just terrible, terrible injustice, the thought of a God that actually would just let it all slide is as unthinkable to them as to some in our culture, the fact of a God who actually would judge. See, God's holiness and his justice requires that there's a judgment. And the truth of the gospel is that through faith in Jesus, he came when he was lifted up on the cross. He made the ultimate sacrifice for sins. And by trusting in him, those sins can be wiped away like like they never happened. And your life can be brought from death, from spiritual death to spiritual life. Beautifully comforting, but at the same time should make us uncomfortable. To the message of the gospel, God took our punishment on himself. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of all time, said this, If you could save yourself, then why would Jesus have had to die? See, and the cultural notion, the popular notion is, hey, kind of, you know, you're just born, you get in, right? We talked about this a little more last week. And the heart of the gospel is, no, you need to be made alive through faith in him. That God loved this fallen world. Emmanuel, God with us, he came to a humanity that was dead in its sins, that was already condemned. And he gave of himself in the most profound and wonderful act in history that anyone who trusts in Jesus and what he did when he died and rose again would not be condemned, but have life. Beautifully comforting. Very uncomfortable. And, and let me just say this. is The implications of these verses, they're either true or they're not true. I believe they're true for a whole number of reasons because I've met Jesus and, and I've encountered him and I've had experiences with God that I have no other explanations for. And I know many of you, have met him in the same way, and your lives have been encountered and transformed. I believe these words are true. This is the gospel. This is literally the gospel truth, right? And here's the implication of that. If it's true, it's the most important reality in the universe. Wouldn't you agree? If there's a reality of eternity, you should take that seriously. Whether you're here and you're just like, you know, in checking out Jesus. I mean, read through the book of John. You can read ahead. That's allowed. We won't cut your points. Because Jesus makes some pretty bold claims. When it comes to eternity and, and, and your eternal destiny. I think if it's true, we would want everyone in our life to know about the truth of this, Right? If it's true, we should actually rearrange every priority in our life because of this. Our life should become centered and focused on the gospel. Because ultimately, it is the ultimate reality. Ultimately, this life as you all know goes by very quickly. Actually, you may if you're in your teens or 20s, you may not know that yet. You'll get into like your mid 30s or you'll have kids and you'll blink and you'll look up and they're almost as tall as you and then you're like, "What happened?" That's how it goes. Trust me. You're like, no. Yeah. It's just ask your parents or your grandparents, right? This, this reality should fundamentally alter things in our heart. It should fundamentally recenter our life on what's truly important. So I want to, before I move on from this, these three verses, I just want to zoom in on, on one of these words in there. And that's the word send. That Jesus send. Next slide. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He sent. He sent. And see, actually, this is a a pretty big deal in the Gospel of John. Jesus is was and is the sent one from God. In fact, when it talks about God loves so he gave, John will go on and talk about Jesus as the one who was sent into this world. He was sent into this world. He'll talk about this 39 times in the gospel. The one who was sent from the Father. Like he was on a mission. He was sent out. He had something that he was called to do. Sent comes from this Greek word apostolos. Sent one. And the first disciples she chose were, you know, big capital A apostles. The apostles, the 12, right, that were sent out into this world to carry the message of the gospel. And guess what? And here's the truth, and here's what you may not think about, too. Every one of us is a small A apostle. Sent one. This is the mission. Like, if you signed up to be a follower of Jesus, you signed up for this. Somebody might not have told you you signed up for this. But you did. This is the mission given to you. In fact, um, we are called to be imitators of Jesus. You know that, right? When, when the words, when, when they coined the term Christian, um, it was actually kind of a derogatory term. It was in Antioch and it was basically little Christs. Um, Christ is Messiah. That's what Christ means, right? So it was kind of, and it kind of stuck. And the point is, you are the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. You are the image of Jesus, or you are the um, representative of Jesus in this world, right? This is basic Christian theology. And if, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to be an imitator of your Savior. And one of the primary characteristics of your Savior is he was sent into this world on a mission. On a mission of grace and love and forgiveness and forgiveness to call people towards himself, to call people towards resp- repentance, all these things. You're called to be an imitator of Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul, here's how he put it. Like he wanted he wanted the people he was writing to in Corinth to understand this. He said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he said, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, G- Now, Jesus was the sent one. And in all of history, I don't know, maybe Paul was like the best representative, next representative of being a sent one, wasn't he? If you know anything about Paul's story, is basically he, he was fighting against Jesus, and then Jesus encountered him in this powerful way, um, and he switched teams. And as the rest of the disciples, you know, were getting some work done in Jerusalem and Samaria and these areas, for the most part, he said, okay, you guys got that? I got the rest of the civilized world. And he goes out and he plants churches all over the Mediterranean rim. A sent one. And he looks at these Corinthians. He says, as I imitate my Savior, you imitate me. That's bold. Man, would that all of our lives, we could say that, right? As I follow Jesus, follow me. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Paul was a sent one, right? He understood the heart of the mission that was given by our Savior. See, Jesus didn't just save us, come to this earth, die, rise again, and go, man, I hope you have a happy, good, blessed life. Health, wealth, prosperity, all that. You guys got it. We'll see you later. No. What did he do? He gathered up his group of disciples, and as he was the sent one, he gave them a mission, didn't he? He sent them out. Matthew 28:19 Therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The commission given to the original disciples that has rolled on to every generation of followers of Jesus to carry the gospel, the good news of Jesus to the uttermost ends of the earth. Acts 1.8, again, before Jesus ascends, he says this to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Uh, you've got a big mission, you're sent, but you're not going to do it on your own strength and power. I'm going to empower you to do it. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, locally, Judea, like this area, Samaria, even those kind of parts you don't like. And to the ends of the earth. Do you know you are sitting in the ends of the earth right here today? You don't feel it. You're like, oh, where is the center of the earth? No, you're in Grand Junction. Come on. (laughs) From Jerusalem. This is the ends of the earth. Nobody even thought there knew there are people on this continent, right? Here we are worshiping Jesus. And there's still corners of this world, pockets of this world, where people do not know the name of Jesus. That's our mission, right? In fact, Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. One of my good missionary friends, a good friend of my parents, he always said, when do we get to go home? When the work's done. So you might want to get on with the work. Now, one of the phrases we use around here and have coined around here to help us understand this mission in our context is this little phrase, My circle, my responsibility. Everybody say that out loud. My circle, my responsibility. See, this is we, we coined this a couple of years ago as we were praying about our strategy for our church to reach our community and reach reach the world. Because the truth is, I think if every one of you would adopt this idea, if every one of us would come to the realization that the people that God has placed in our circle of influence are our responsibility to reach, they're our responsibility to love and pray for and serve and invite and share the gospel with. If every one of us would embrace that and actually begin to live that out, it would radically change our community and the ripples would go on to change the world. See, one of the things is we, we tend to kind of get this, but we, we reduce our mission just to, because um, we know the great commandment, love God, love others, right? But too many times we reduce love others just to being nice to people and kind to people. And that's good. You should do that. That's Christ-like. Be kind. That's a good thing, but it doesn't stop. Being kind doesn't stop with just being nice to people. In fact, sometimes sharing, sometimes the uncomfortable truth is the kindest thing you can do, right? You want someone who will tell you the truth. And if what John 3, 16 through 18 says is the truth, which I believe it is, man, you want somebody who will share that message with you. It's not very kind or loving to never get around to sharing the gospel with people. And so your circle of responsibility, yes, that is your family, primary. That is your coworkers, your friends, your extended family, your literal neighbors across the street, the people God's placed in your life. But we believe it's also people that you've not met around the world, but you have the opportunity to impact. A number of years ago, I was talking to Ray as we... You know, we're working together. And as some of these plans were first starting up, it was cool because God was doing the same thing on uh, another pastor's heart who was instrumental in spearheading the, the church planting thing. And it was like I was talking about, say, how can we support some local indigenous missionaries? Because I feel like God has placed a burden of responsibility for our church to reach these unreached areas in Southeast Asia, this area. And so... A number of years now, you know, we've been able to partner and be part of what God is doing. And He's doing great things, right? Because why? Because our circle isn't just the people right around us, it extends. We're all called. I I tell people this all the time you're either called to pray, send, and go, or go when it comes to world missions. That you should have a heart for the nations. Now, maybe your focus is local and that's what God's placed your passion. That's great but you should still care about the people on the other side of the world, vice versa, too. It's not just like, well, I'm a world missions guy, but I don't give a rip about my neighbor. No. Wrong. It's both and. Everyone has different, like, focuses and passions, but we're called to both, right? Which is why our church is so committed to missions. I've told you many times our goal is to get every one of you at some point on a missions trip because it does something in your heart and it reorients it for the kingdom of God worldwide. And so the question is, when it comes to this, my circle, my responsibility, when it comes to the Great Commission, when it comes to the fact that you are a sent one and given a mission, the question is, is there, any one thing, is there anything about your life that reflects the mission of being a sent one? you got to stop and ask yourself that. If the uncom- comforting and uncomforting truth of John 3, 16 through 18 is true. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I think if we ask for a show of hands, you know, almost every hand in the room would go up. Is there anything about your life that reflects the mission of being a sent one? See, the tendency of mission in life is to drift, isn't it? Just like me on the beach in San Diego and looking up and, oh, before you know it, oh, there's my parents way up there, right? That's, that's life, isn't it? And that's our tendency in life when it comes to our primary mission as a follower of Jesus. To share his love, to share his good news it is for us just to drift. The tendency is for life to become about ourselves, isn't it? Our comfort, upgrading, status, security happiness, all those things, good things. But the tendency is, is for instead of being like on mission and all those things are added on, like Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. The tendency is for us to drift to, to those things being the focus and the kingdom of God and the mission of the gospel as being an afterthought. Our tendency, it's so, it's so easy for life to become all about me and, and my issues and my problems isn't it? It's so easy for, for the focus of family and our conversations to, to just ignore the gospel and spiritual realities and become focused on, you know, well, where are you going to school and, you know, how, how are we doing and all the sports we're in and just the busyness of life and family life to become all wrapped up in that. And the gospel and the spread of the gospel not to be really be a part of our family conversations. That's the natural drift and tendency. It's it's easy for our prayers to become all centered on our happiness and success or our problems and not about those who we would be called to share the gospel with. It's really hard, actually, to keep our hearts centered on the mission, isn't it? And I think if that's true for For a pastor, it's probably true for you, too, because the natural tendency of life is for us to drift away from being centered on the gospel and the mission that he's given us. See, the truth is you have to decide to stay on mission and you have to constantly recenter yourself. It's just the way it is. That's why actually, you know, the, the rhythm of coming to church, if if we're doing our job correctly, we have these kind of what seem like basic conversations regularly because you and I need to be recentered regularly. We need to be reminded of what's most important. We need to decide to do it. We need to be recentered because it doesn't just happen automatically. In fact, the apostle Paul, who is, you know, perhaps one of the most effective or most effective missionaries of all times. He wrote this in 1 Corinthians 9. When it came to the mission God had given him, he said, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. It's a discipline thing. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. See, the idea here is there is actually, when you read through the, the New Testament, there are eternal rewards for living your life on mission. And boy, for eternity, that's going to seem a lot more important than all the things we worked so hard to achieve now And that next rung on the ladder and success. I mean, you know, like I say, none of those things are bad. The problem is when we get off center on the mission. He says, I stay centered. I stay focused on what I'm called to do. They do it. We do it for a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. I live life on purpose. This is the guy who said, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Live life on purpose. Are you centered on the mission? Are you centered on the gospel? Are you centered on the task that Jesus has given us as his followers? And, and the point is, it's not just emotion. It is. There's a discipline to it. There's a discipline to recentering yourself and living your life on mission for God. Because it doesn't just happen naturally. You know that, right? Right? just like your health goals at the beginning of the year, don't just happen naturally, right? In fact, if you're not very diligent, you drift. Same thing's true of our life of following Jesus, staying centered on the mission of the gospel. It's, it, it, it's not just emotion. Emotion's good. I love coming together. We worship goosebumps, you know. That's great. Those are some beautiful moments when God encounters us and we experience his presence. I'm not discounting that. But if it stops there for you, you run the risk of living an emotion-based life that actually doesn't accomplish anything. That's not how you want to live for Jesus. See, it's choosing to stay centered. It's choosing to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and guide you and lead you and empower you To do what you're called to do in a day and then being attentive to his voice when he taps you on the shoulder, right? And says, I want you to have a conversation with so-and-so or pass along this book or write a letter to so-and-so or pick up the phone, shoot somebody a text, share Jesus, ask if I can pray for you, recenter your life. Sometimes when we talk about like following and being responsive to the Holy Spirit, it just feels very squishy, especially for like intellectually based people. It's "Eh, kind of like... Touchy-feely, squishy. No, actually, there's something about following the Spirit that's very intentional, that's meant to be very intentional. In fact, sometimes it is a battle against the flesh, against all the things that would distract you, right? In fact, Paul says in another passage, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow philosophies. Like your natural tendency is to... For your heart and your mind to be drawn off course and taken captive, and before you know it, you're way off of where you're supposed to be centered on being. That's the natural drift of life. you got to decide. See, I think if the Great Commission and sharing the gospel, if being a sent one, it is the mission that we've been given by Jesus, we need to ask some kind of introspective questions. Like, how is your attention deployed towards the mission? Does the mission, does the gospel have any share of your attention? Or is it just dropping into church a couple times here and there? Like Monday through Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whatever day you go to church. Is your heart, is your attention at all, on the gospel. How are your prayers deployed towards the mission? Like the amazing thing, you see this in Acts. After these guys were brutally beaten and persecuted, they come back in the, in the church instead of praying for, oh, help us, keep us safe. Their prayer was, make us more bold to share the gospel. What? Can you imagine if the, the majority of our prayers were centered on the mission of God? If I, I love it. My little girl, she was such a prayer warrior. And for the couple of years before, um, she prayed for her great-grandma because great-grandma didn't know Jesus. She prayed and prayed almost every day. It was like she was more diligent than any of us. And a couple weeks before great-grandma died, she accepted Jesus. Oh, that's awesome. That's a prayer warrior, right? Are your prayers focused on, like, who in your life doesn't know Jesus? How are your resources deployed towards the mission? Three major areas, time, talent, treasure, right? Are you you living a generous life? And what so many people do is, yeah, I'm generous, because every once in in a while something tugs on your heart and, and you give, and that's a good thing to actually have an overflowing of generosity. But are you being disciplined in your generosity? It's not just all like emotion. There's a discipline to it. In fact, I believe we, you know, here at Life Community Church, if you've been coming for any length of time, you know, we, j- we don't talk about money very much. That's intentional because we know we want you to invite your friends. And we know a lot of your friends have the idea that the church is always asking for money. But don't ever like translate that to mean that managing your resources and investing in the kingdom of God isn't important because it is. In fact, one of the most powerful things you can do and teach your kids and, and personally do this has been one of the most powerful things in my life is the discipline of tithing where you give first to God out of what comes in and teaching your kids that. I mean, you know, that's what we teach our kids, you know. Dollar comes in, dime goes in giving envelope, dime goes in savings. Give to God first, pay yourself second. Good Dave Ramsey stuff. You can adjust the savings percentage as you go along based on your retirement goals, right? <laughs> I mean, really, it recenters your heart and life on being disciplined about putting the kingdom of God first, right? How are your resources deployed towards the mission? How are your gifts and talents deployed towards the mission? Like God's given you specific giftings and abilities on purpose. Are you using them to accomplish his mission on earth? How are your family conversations deployed towards the mission? Are they? Does your family have times where you talk about Jesus and the gospel and reaching people that don't know him? So here's what I want to leave you with: just this thought today. And I thought as we had this day where we're, you know, celebrating and supporting the work around the world of our missions partners, Outpour, what better time to ask ourselves this question? What do you need to change to live on mission for the gospel? Have you drifted? What do you need to do to recenter yourself? What does that look like for you? Who are you praying for regularly? I'll give you a real easy practical step to begin. Why don't you select one or two family members And just start praying for him every day. Say, we're going to pray for him every day till the end of the year as a family. We're going to invite him to Christmas or we're going to send him a letter or maybe pass on a book. We're going to be intentional about sharing the gospel. Are you deploying your resources in a disciplined way? Are your... Family conversations propelling you towards mission. A good question is, are you willing to go through any awkward in order to share Jesus? So many people fear awkward, I think, more than death. Sometimes to share the gospel, you have to get past the awkward. My grandfather, um, he grew up a Catholic altar boy. Until he was about five, and he'd always say, like, he'd sneak behind the, uh, he'd sneak behind the altar and steal the leftover uh, communion wine. He'd tell a story about doing that. <laughs> he'd always say, I got enough church in the first five years of my life for the rest of my life. And my parents would just share Jesus with him, and it was awkward. It was always awkward talking to grandpa about spiritual things. You know the feeling if you've ventured out, and done that, right? bring it up. My parents, they'd write letters. They'd pass along books. They'd just always like do that, right? My grandpa was in his 90s and we didn't know exactly where he's at with Jesus. We'd seen some real like progress in his life that made us think that God had been working on him. But he fell when my parents were out of town on a trip and, and he broke his hip. And my parents called before and said, hey, can you get down there? or a guy that age, he may not come out of it. And I got down there and had the chance to talk to him before he went into surgery. And I told him the story about the thief on the cross, this guy who, had, who had, never really, had never done anything for God in his life, right? In fact, he's done a lot of bad things. And yet he trusted in Jesus, and Jesus said, today you'll be with me. Beautiful story. Again, the heart of the gospel free grace. And I got to pray with my grandpa and lead him in a prayer. They embraced Jesus. And it was a beautiful moment. But here's the thing. My parents pushed through awkward for 40 something years. Gently sharing at the appropriate times, right? They weren't ever jerks for Jesus. You can do that too. That doesn't work very well. But don't think that just because you're You're nice, but you never get around to getting past awkward that you're fulfilling your mission either, okay? You look for appropriate, kind ways, and yes, it's going to feel awkward to share your faith and gently share. What do you need to change to live life on mission for the gospel? Are you living like a sent one?